0: This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking and inspire them to teach with joy. Joining me <laughs> on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Hannah Beach. Hannah is a deputy head teacher at a recently opened primary school in Kent where she leads on embedding effective teaching and learning and building the school curriculum. Before becoming a senior leader, she was a key stage two phase leader at a large primary school. Hannah is a keen writer and passionate educator. She has contributed articles to Teacher Toolkit, Kent, Teach and TES, and she is the author of the wonderful new book Sixty Second CPD, 239 Ideas for Busy Teachers with Ross Morrison McGill. Hannah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today.
1: You're very welcome. I'm really pleased to be here and to be having a chat with you today.
0: Thank you. And for the listeners' benefit, this is the second time we've tried to record it today because I made a slight error, which I'm, I'm holding my hands up there. So Hannah's been so patient and wonderful. So thank you. So thank we'll, you. We'll, we'll start. We'll start again with the, the interview, and actually, just give us a pot history of your career today.
1: Um, so I started out in education around 13 years ago. I studied the um, B.A. Ed. Primary education at uni, and then I um, started my year Mm. in year two, um, and I stayed there for a couple of years, and then kind of moved on to year three. And of course, like most teachers, whichever year group I taught in became my favourite year group. Um, So I was just happy kind of moving up and down key stages one and two, which was really interesting, and it just allowed me to keep things exciting and flexible. Um, And then a couple of years into my teaching, I was given the opportunity to lead on pupil voice. And at the time, I didn't really know what that was, even though I was really excited to kind of have something to lead on. Um, So I went off and learned lots and lots about that. And I managed to kind of implement some quite good stuff in uh, terms of pupil voice with like head boy and head girl and that kind of thing. And then eventually that led to me leading on well-being and involvement. And I started studying um, people engagement using the Fair as well being of involvement scales and um, exploring flow in learning and, and deep learning state. And after a few years of leading on that, that led me on to leading teaching and learning across the school. Um, and time goes on, you know, I led some phases and year groups along the way. And then I moved into deputy headship about two and a half years ago, um, which I'm really loving. It's such a fun and exciting role. And it just keeps me very, very busy um, I'm leading on curriculum and teaching and learning, and I think a little bit of well-being, which I think will always be close to my heart, is my background.
0: Thank you so much uh, for, that, for that little pot of history, Hannah. We're going to talk today about your, your book, 60 Second CPD, which you wrote alongside Ross Morrison-McGill. And I'd like this to start by, by asking you, why, why did you write 60 Second CPD, and where did that idea for it come from?
1: Um, when I started um, blogging, I've always been interested in writing, and I stumbled across um a video on YouTube by Ross Morris McGill um offering teachers blogging tips and um it was it was really good and really interesting. So I, I actually messaged him one of my blogs I'd written for Kent Teach and said, you know, what do you think? How can I make this better? And um we got chatting and he actually said oh come you know come and have a go at blogging for me. So I did so and um lots of my blogs were quite short and Holly the editor at the time had said to me, Okay, do you want to um create a kind of weekly series called you know, one minute CPD. Um, so I started writing these big blogs and uh, I found that they were a really great way for people to just kind of pick up ideas quite quickly. And then eventually Ross um, kind of pinged into the DMs and said, look, do you, do you want to write a book based on this premise? And I was a little bit cautious, a little bit worried, of course, because it's quite a big thing to embark on, especially as I just started my depth headship. And I kind of said, oh, we'll come back to it. But, you know, within a couple of months, And we did come back to it. And yeah, we got right in the book. And the whole point of the book is to save teachers time. There's so much out there. We want teachers and educators of um, all walks of life to to pick up the book, have these ideas quickly, implement them, or go and find out more if that's something they're interested in. Because as we know, time is so precious and we only have, you know, set amount of time. So to kind of have everything in one place um, was the idea. And, Workload and well-being are things that are really important to me. So I thought that if I can help other people with that, it would be really nice.
0: (laughs) Certainly, and, and and you certainly get that when you <laughs> yeah. when you read the book, and there's so there's so, such a such a, as I said to you, fair there's so, so many ideas in there that you can read and you can and then you can go and look further into, and then you can jump in and out of the book. So it's such a wonderful wonderful resource for that. And because there's so much ideas in there, I I, I generated questions that could have lasted about six hours. So I've man, I've tried to narrow it down a little bit, and we're gonna cover some of the some of the th- some of the topics that you discuss in the book. And, and the book starts with behavior, and you shared a, a start that says. 82% of teachers believe there's a widespread behaviour problem in their school. And then you go on to talk about desirable and undesirable behaviour. So could you could you share what is desirable and undesirable behaviour for you in your setting?
1: Mm, well, first off, I think it's um, it's interesting in terms of the stats. It's quite quite scary actually to think that that many people in in school, that many teachers believe that there's that widespread problem. And I think it would go amiss not to discuss that but also to normalise it. And I think it's okay that we we have those thoughts. We are working with young people who are kind of navigating lots of new things around them. They lack self-regulation. They're not always sure how to deal with the world around them. They're, they put themselves at the centre of their world, which is normal in terms of their development and stages, but it's sometimes easy, easy for us to kind of forget that because we are at the end of that journey. We can hopefully now self-regulate um, and kind of have that for ourselves but they are like they're starting out they're the interns in life so that unsteadiness that kind of surrounds them and leads to challenging behavior um, so I think it's okay to normalize that there is difficult behavior in school so in the book I talk about desirable and undesirable um, behaviors and how important it is to have a clear impression of what these are in your school or your classroom and um, so for me I think it's really important to keep things simple so I've picked Three that I would have for my setting at the moment. The first one would be respectful communication and that's between staff and pupils and pupils to pupils as well. The second one would be um, to have a purposeful and deep engagement into the learning. I really want children to actually put themselves at the centre of the learning and push themselves and challenge themselves and take that real pride in their learning. And the final one um, would be um, building others up because I think it's really key that we build each other up. I'm all for kind of helping one another, working together and actually making other people feel good so that they can get as much of, um, out of life as possible. And the undesirable things would be the opposite. So, for example, number one would be unkind, rude, disrespectful words and um, wouldn't be kind of permitted. A lack of effort or pride in their learning. And then the opposite of bringing people up, which is be bringing people down, you know, criticising people in an unhelpful way or mocking um. Any, anything like that I just think wouldn't really watch in my classroom. Um, so I think it really varies from person to person, school to school, classroom to classroom, cohort to cohort. but if you mentally map out what it is that you expect from behavior desirable and undesirable in your setting, then ultimately it shows you understand what you're happy to kind of put up with commit and what you're going to promote in your setting and that can really help with just managing any kind of behavior that you face.
0: And certainly is, there? and there's a section in the book that allows you to jot down what what the t- the reader thinks are desirable nuzban, and I feel that that would be a worthwhile exercise for for teachers to do to to map out what they do, and and as you say, as you said there, make that explicit to to the children so they know exactly what's it, what's expected of them, and and you you talk about challenging behaviour in the book, and I think that's something that a lot of teachers kind of are fearful of, especially when they're they're starting out, and and what tips do you give then? For teachers to de escalate challenging behaviour?
1: Yeah, challenging behaviour really gets in the way of what we're trying to do. um, And it can really impact our wellbeing as well and the learning of other children in the classroom. So it's super important that you have a kind of toolkit ready to kind of handle these things. And it's not to say that you want undesirable behaviour, but coming to expect it in some way is going to help you feel more prepared. So whether you're a new teacher or an experienced teacher, just having that full box of things to help you manage and de-escalate behavior is really important. So idea number three in the book covers de-escalation. Um, I think the first thing to consider, de-escalate, to is really know the child as an individual and on a deep and genuine level. Because in that way, you know their triggers, you know what's going to help them. Once you know what kind of triggers them or, or what might help them, you can begin to notice and kind of even predict um, behavior might happen when it might happen what's going to kind of escalate something in that child and I found that de-escalation works really well at points of escalation rather than at the peak of escalation because once it's reached escalation and the child is peaking, it's really hard to pull it back down and it takes even longer so kind of think prevention rather than reaction where possible you can use um, distraction so like reading a book or giving them something that they do enjoy doing, using some breathing techniques, anything like that. Humor can be really powerful if you get it right. It has to be well-based. Um, humor when somebody's really stressed is really unhelpful, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, saying unhelpful things like calm down, you know, that that's not going to work. But giving children time and space to de-escalate and allowing a real amount of time because often children can re-escalate. So you think that, they have calmed down. Everything's now fine in 10 minutes. And then a few minutes later, they're kicking off again or their behaviour is escalating again. Actually, they weren't fully really down the first time. So really giving them that time is really important. Use that empathy to stabilise the child. And a really key thing is don't join the chaos as you're kind of watching them escalate. It's easy to get caught up into what's happening and escalate with them. So you're both kind of on this trajectory of escalation and um, one of you needs to stop and often it, it's not cold So even if you're feeling inside that you're escalating yourself, try and remember that game face. Be calm, protected and in control. That gives them foundation of safety and will help them calm down sooner rather than later. And then the final thing would be just log anything serious. Always write it down. Always log things. What happened? Why? When? Who was there? What time was it? All of these things are going to be vital if something else comes from this incident um because it's about protecting yourself
0: and the child and... In thank you there's such such wonderful wonderful tips there and i, and I love the one about not joining the chaos because i think if i think back <laughs> yeah. to, my, to my early career i was definitely guilty of that and out, out in the, i'm a pt out in the sports field with 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 <laughs> the kind of heat rising and definitely not being able to, to step back and and stay calm and and it kind of definitely helps the children. So thank you very much for that. We're now going to move on to talk about about the curriculum, and curriculum is very much taken centre stage in England as a, as a result of it being a key part of the Ofsted inspection framework. So what key ideas do you give for teachers to grasp and understand the curriculum?
1: Yeah, you're quite right. It's really kind of taking centre stage, hasn't it? um and quite rightly so, not because of Ofsted, but because actually. It does deserve the attention that we're now giving it. I think if we start by appreciating the gravitas of what is taught, um, that can really help in kind of valuing and delivering and driving the content of what we do, um, because what we teach is absolutely vital. What happens at the end of our teaching, um, and I do feel like a bit of a broken record with this response. I'm sorry if any of my teachers are listening, <laughs> I, um, but I always say this: is just read the national curriculum. It is your kind of teacher bible. Be familiar with it and um, know the content. If you really know your content, um, then you build up confidence in what it is that you're doing so that you can achieve it in a more successful way. Um, And it's not just the national curriculum. It, It will be whatever curriculum it is for wherever you are. And that will be your school curriculum as well. Know what it is that your school wants you to achieve because you are part of a puzzle in your classroom. You're not in isolation. So knowing what's happened before you and what's coming next really helps you to shape the piece of your puzzle successfully to ensure that um, the people's gain the knowledge that is deemed relevant in your content, and that they have that readiness about them so they can move on ready as possible. Well.
0: Certainly, and oh, oh, there, so, sorry, <laughs> talking, a lot of the sorry, I just echoed there, so sorry. again. A lot of the discussions and discourse that's happening around the curriculum, this idea of a knowledge-rich curriculum. Could you speak to that? The idea of a knowledge-rich curriculum.
1: Yeah, it's a funny one, this knowledge rich curriculum, I guess. Um, I suppose my my interpretation to be a knowledge rich curriculum is a curriculum that is primarily driven by um ensuring that children gain what is deemed to be appropriate and relevant knowledge for your context. And it's a curriculum that puts kind of developing and retaining that knowledge of the heart um of everything that the teachers do in the classroom and what they offer. Um, I think there's an argument to say that all curriculums are knowledge curriculums in a way. I think you no know, we all, whichever school you're in, whether you're kind of skills led or knowledge led, there is going to be knowledge in there. It's undeniable. And it's undeniable how important that knowledge is going to be in order to achieve the goals that we have. um. So I guess in terms of the knowledge rich curriculum, the focus on that key knowledge is what drives their outcomes the most. But I, I do think arguably we all have knowledge rich curriculums or knowledge engaged curriculums at the very
0: Certainly, thank you. And one of the the key bits I like like what you said there. and I want to pick out is this idea that as a teacher, you're you're part of the puzzle. I really like that analogy that you that you made there, and that what you do it kind of builds on and it will contribute to future learning. So I really like that. So thank you very much for that. Um, students having subject specific vocabulary is very much key for success. And what tips do you give to to encourage its use in the classroom?
1: Mm, um. I'm a real advocate for oracy and vocabulary. It's something I think is really, really important for children's understanding and their success um, within the society in terms of their personal development. There is an idea in the book about this, so I'll just kind of unpick some of those suggestions. Um So uh, one of the first tips is to make sure that all the keywords for um topic or the unit are on display. It does take some thinking about. You're going to have to sit down and purposely select the right words and do be selective. Think about the purpose which words you want and why and um, the next tip would be to um take time with your class to generate a, a, a bank of words and i think that has three benefits so the first benefit is that you get some great words on a list from the children and from yourself second is your assessment for learning because you can establish what the children know and the third it just builds the status of vocabulary and words in the classroom it's kind of like Look, this is important we're going to dedicate a little bit of time to this here and I think that raises profile of vocabulary in the classroom um always define new words um children often hear words and they might even use them but they don't really know what they're saying half the time and I I do that as an adult you know there's words that I use and I think <laughs> was that used correctly so I'll go away and look at the definition um so yeah there might even be things I've said in this in this interview that um, might not be right um it's all about actually knowing what the words mean giving that context um, another thing to think about is using listen and say. So saying a word out loud to the class and making them kind of parrot it back to you really key. They may never have said that word out loud. They might have read it. They might have heard it. Um, they might understand it, but they may never have said that word from their mouth. And I think actually if we can help them pronounce it and say it, it's going to make those deep connections to that word. Overusing new words is a really good idea. I know lots of people use the idea of having like a word of the week and they kind of drill that word in. And then eventually that, that word can become part of your classroom dynamic and your dialogue that you just have in your classroom. That's a really good one. Um, start your new day by recapping old words from the previous lesson. It really gets those brains firing. You've got that powerful rehearsal and retrieval working that way. Using synonyms. So if a child says to you, one thing you can kind of repeat it back to them but using two or three synonyms and so for example maybe an early years example but if they said oh i'm really cold you might say yeah i'm really chilly too it's freezing isn't it are you chilly and then they start to really build their bank of words and make associations and then teaching children the etymology of words um is really interesting because it helps them understand how words work and what words link together and it does again it's a little bit of time research sometimes we don't always know the background and Latin and Greek, and you know the places that words have come from, but it is worthwhile, and it's only a quick Google search. So make those connections, and um that will help them build their repertoire.
0: Of words it certainly doesn't, it, and it builds that their academic academic register, if you like. And and we all know the the, the statistics of of children coming from middle class backgrounds compared to disadvantaged backgrounds, and the amount of words that they they know as they come up. So it's important that we do spend a lot of time giving them the giving them the, the language and giving them the vocabulary they need to be successful we're going to talk talk a little bit about parents because parents are, are so important in a student's education and And you talk about getting parents to, to step up so how can we get them to to step up and be engaged in their child's education
1: yeah i think this is another one we could potentially talk about for six hours um it's so important isn't it and and i kind of i mentioned in the book that you know you could quote research about this say that uh, parental engagement impacts people learning and, and child engagement but you almost don't need it you don't need research work in a school you know it see it feel it you experience it every day and actually we know that good parental engagement just through experience results in um good people engagement and it's easier when you work together and collaborate with parents so there are so many things to consider with this um, again I think it comes down to establishing what is parental engagement for you at your school is it making sure your parents help homework, is it making sure that your parents come to sports day or you know the reading afternoon is it the fact that you want them to remember to pick up their child um, it, it's context dependent and it's individual parent dependent as well i think if you build um a culture around what it is that you expect as as teachers and school leaders then you can start to apply that your context and and again looping the parents in um they should know what you expect and they should be on board with that as well it's kind of getting that buy-in from the parents um one key message i think is really important to put out there regardless of the school cohort and the background and that you know, socio-economic status of parents is something I feel really passionate about is always assume the best. But for the vast, vast majority of the time, I have found time and time again that parents deeply love their children. They want the best for their children and to assume otherwise is is almost, you know, patronising in that way. So we have to assume the best. Of course, there are times when parents find that difficult. Um, They might have other things going on that makes it very challenging to access from schools and to provide the best support that they can and we of course we support them when that occurs but always assume the best of parents we have a common goal we we both schools and parents want the best for their children so start with that commonality and you build from the ground up based on that working on those shared goals um communicate with parents effectively there's it's always the complaint isn't it they didn't know enough um and you can put it on the newsletters you can text it out you can say it to them but say you're There's always going to be parents that don't feel they know enough. The over communication is really key. Um, Another thing that came up in the book as well, after some reading that I did, was offering some training to your staff. It's kind of assumes that we all know as teachers we come from uni and we all know how to manage, support, guide parents, talk to them. We don't. We don't always know because there are so many different types of parents. We can't possibly know it all, but. To allow a forum for your staff through CPC sessions, sit down and have a really good chat about how do we deal with this issue with this parent um, and to help each other and to kind of set those expectations on a school-wide level is going to be really key in making your teachers feel solid and secure in um, going forward with talking to parents, dealing with complaints, those kind of important things. But ultimately, it's about relationships, I think, and fostering those strong and like respectful relationships with parents and i think then in most cases you get that back in return as well
0: no certainly certainly <laughs> doing it and definitely and certainly in my experience that almost all parents they they, they want the best for their children and they're not and, and often it's what can i perceive it that they, they, they maybe don't but it's just because there's challenges in their way but they do want want the best and i like the idea that you, you shared there about staff getting together because sometimes you have kind of a tricky situation with a parent that you don't quite know how to deal with, but somebody, somebody in, a, in a different department or a different faculty or kind of in, the, in a different classroom has already dealt with that parent or already has it in the no strategy, so it's important to lean on each other. So thank you very much for that. I'm now going to hit move on to, to feedback. And feedback is, is one of the most valuable tools we have as educators. But you're right that we have developed a narrow view of what feedback is. So why is this and what type of methods do you suggest for giving feedback?
1: I think feedback has been kind of hijacked by the wrong principles. Feedback um, children has kind of morphed into marking. And feedback teachers has become about labels. And then feedback schools about judgment. And the core essence of what we want to achieve from feedback has just kind of become this like weird dilution of what we really want and what we really need from it. And nobody really wanted feedback anymore because um, it became about those things and we lost the focus. So I think moving forward, um, I think we need to kind of reclaim feedback a little bit as educators. There's a a real power behind feedback in terms of what it often Uh, offers us in terms of opportunity for reflection and progression. And it was Dylan William that said um, feedback is about offering something that moves the learning forward. I think that just encapsulates it really well, whereas marking labels and judgment almost tend to be the opposite of that. Um, So, yeah, I think it's kind of lost its way a little bit, but I think it's starting to come back. And I've seen in education, certainly in the last few years, people are moving towards more of a kind of balanced view of feedback. Um, But yeah, for giving feedback, I think it depends on who your stakeholders are. It kind of goes staff to staff, staff to people, people to people, staff to parents, parents to staff, governors, to staff, and go on and on. So it's quite complex. But um, the main thing, I think, is feedback culture set by the senior leaders. So I think senior leaders have a huge responsibility to kind of state themselves, what do we want feedback um, to look like in our schools? How do we want feedback to be given and received? And also, how do we model this ourselves as leaders? Do we receive and give feedback in the way that we want it to be given? To you?
0: Yeah, I like you, your call to arms at the start there, how we need to reclaim our reclaim our feedback and some some great points there. I'm going to narrow down to, to two of the the ideas that you, you talk about in, in the feedback chapter, and that's verbal feedback and whole class feedback because they've both been getting a lot of coverage in, in, in blogs and in, in articles etc so i've got kind of two-pronged attack on, the, on this question if you like how do we give verbal feedback that sticks and also how do we use whole class feedback really well
1: okay hey, um so verbal feedback that sticks is really important otherwise we're just kind of throwing feedback into the wind and off it goes and we feel we've done our job but nothing's really been done with that feedback so think um it's really key to make sure that our feedback had an impact one of the ideas in the book is is giving feedback and it's basically summarized around the notion that you repeat the feedback in very simple terms you have one bit of feedback that provides an opportunity for a marginal gain you tell the child really explicitly what that feedback is and ask them to kind of parrot that back to you to make sure that they've actually understood what it is you're saying and then once you know that the child has got that feedback um, allow them the time and space or support if need be to achieve it and then the important bit is to go back and check it sounds really obvious but the opposite is easy to do you kind of drop feedback and go to somebody else drop some more feedback and actually just calming back around what you've suggested and just checking that they've got it's going to be the next step in whether they actually achieved something from your feedback or not if it's something they didn't initially do um, the likelihood that they're going to do it the next Time is, is quite slim. So you have to kind of go over these things over and over again and double check. So giving that kind of explicit instruction and being really clear is a small step for them, kind of gaining what they need to achieve. Right,
0: thank and then you. Yeah, hold us, uh, Yes, whole class
1: uh, feedback. Yes. Yeah, whole class feedback. So this is something a few schools are really embarking on, and I think it's going really well out there. I've, I've read some great blogs about it, and we've started a uh, years ago. Our school as well. Um, it just means that you're not kind of spending hours marking and not all these colourful pens. It's actually just a case of really checking through the lesson and at the end of the lesson what's been achieved and then taking that and using that at the start of the next lesson to build on and move forward. A bit like Dylan William was saying about you know feedback that moves and progresses the learning forward. Having a quick look at the book. Making some keynotes on what it is you want the children to mainly reflect on, giving that kind of dedicated time to respond to that feedback, and then making sure that they can articulate themselves what it is that they need to do next. Um, I think that saves teachers time, and it's really useful on a whole whole class level as well.
0: Certainly, and it definitely helps us reclaim our reclaim our feedback and, and manage our, manage our workload effectively and. and you, can, you cover that really, really well in the, in the book. So thank you there. And kind of important to feedback as well is this idea of celebrating success. So how important is celebrating success throughout the year? Uh, and how does this help maintain great relationships?
1: Uh, this, this idea does come up in the rapport and relationship chapter of the book um, as well. I think it's really easy to just roll through the year, through the curriculum. You've got your assessments coming up. You've got your content to get through. There's all this coverage. Um, And actually, it would be easy just kind of whiz through the year, time to term, without slowing down and celebrating anything. There's a real place for celebration, I think, in classrooms. Um, I think if we celebrate children's achievements and actually think on a staff level as well, let's include the adults in that as well, it's fair. It's fair because it, it helps them feel appreciated and it motivates them. And again, it links into that value of building people up. Um, if they've taken the time to do something really well, why don't we ever take the time to slow down and say, this is amazing? And if they've written, a, if they spent two weeks writing something and it's finally finished, um, it's really tempting to close the book and move on to the next big write. And stop, take, take a lesson and really embed what's gone well. Talk about it, share it, celebrate it. Um, So some of the tips that I've put in the book um, for the idea about this are giving children a bit of free time. Although time is precious in the classroom, and I do know there's a lot to get through and we can't possibly squeeze it all in, just a little bit of free time to children, gives them that recognition for their hard work, says to them, you know, I hear you, I see that you've been working hard, and in response to that, we're going to share that time together. And don't don't use that time for yourself, but, you know, join them, celebrate that time with them. Um, You can put on a little... Surprise, which is so lovely to watch it's, it's actually how nice is that but on a surprise This you know they come in and it's like it doesn't have to be long but we've now got 10 minutes of this and it's going to be really lovely in this view you. and you can just see the joy in the room when this happens and you can see the impact and it is worthwhile and celebrating their big accomplishments so for example like I said with a big right make sure it is a big deal if you've asked them to do something big then make a big thing of it um, and hopefully that then inspires them to do that again in the, same, in the same vein. And then share their homegrown successes. Lots of children do things outside of school. Their talents might not lie in the core curriculum. It might be that they are fantastic at football or, sport or swimming or they've been taking part in dance or a hobby. Share that with the class. Have that collective celebration together. You are a team and that really helps foster that relationship. It's all about that long game. I think the successful relationships require that appreciation and celebration i know i'm motivated when i feel appreciated and valued at work same for as well i think
0: it's, it certainly is isn't it? and i like how you you mentioned there about recognizing things outside of outside of the the core i teach physical education and, and so many children come to us and they share about their exploits and karate and kayaking and snowboarding and, and all the wonderful things and I think it's very important as you said there to celebrate that with the class and and applaud them on their on their work because they might, they might not have achieved anything in school but the achievements outside of school are as are, 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 are as weighty and as, as as outstanding as they are in school so thank you for recognizing that we're coming to that towards the end of the, the interview kind of section and Hannah we're going to cover one last topic and it's a topic that, that I really really, really Really, really enjoy talking about and and it's teaching and learning. And you mentioned that teaching and learning are often said together, but you're right that they're not the same thing. Why will understanding what learning is or isn't be beneficial for teachers?
1: Yeah, um, really key actually. We we just we kinda of twin them up, don't we? We're like teaching and learning, teaching and learning, and they always come in the same sentence. That's not to say they're not connected, like twins, you know, they, they are connected. Um, but teaching about learning isn't worth much at all if teaching without learning isn't worth much at all without, you know, sorry, that's gone a bit wrong. <laughs> sorry. Okay. So they're obviously connected because teaching without learning isn't worth much at all. And then learning without teaching just belongs and quite fruitless. You're not going to just have learning without any good teaching. So I think there's that kind of power in separating them. Just tackle one at a time because they're so big, so complex, and they are the main thing of what we're what we're all doing we're here to teach and we're here to create learning so I think learning is something we all want for our children and then um, we want them to remember the content that we've taught enjoy it apply it and and really kind of grab it with both hands so our teaching should really be structured around this aim so if we know what um people's need if, if they need regular recaps of their learning if they need really good modeling and explanations that's and concise instruction then we should use that in our teaching to kind of produce the outcome of learning. so knowing the importance of effective questioning for example is a gateway for assessment but also enhanced learning we need to then put that into our teaching. We know I think well most people know that teaching and learning and certainly learning isn't about activities and resources but it can be like enhanced by these things and they kind of contribute as vessels towards the learn. So we have to center our teaching around what's going to work help children make those connections. Um, And then from those lived experiences and from that work and the research of others, we can apply these strategies to what we're doing. So I think it boils down to, again, what you know um, that you want from teaching and what you expect from learners. And then when you can articulate what you want from teaching and articulate what it is you want from learning, then you can kind of put them back together again and it it, fits
0: Certainly. And, and something that you suggest that really kind of fascinates me so much is that I would, I would never have thought, thought of this myself. And you are right that if we're going to have a teaching and learning policy, why not have a separate one for each? Why will that be a useful strategy for schools?
1: So I think given that teaching and learning are kind of these separate entities, that they can't just be banded together all the time, you have to separate them to understand each of them in their own right. It seems weird that we've then kind of chopped them together on a teaching and learning policy. Um, so I think building teaching policy, and in fact, I'm going to rebrand it a little bit as a teaching agreement, because I think it, it should be an agreement about a collection of people that work together, not something that's crossed upon staff, um, is going to be useful for the teachers. And then building you know a learning agreement is going to be useful for the people that are doing the learning which is the children so well hopefully so you know I think loop the kids in as well get the kids to think about what it is that good learning looks like what it feels like how they know that they've achieved good learning and from that kind of build them into instructing your learning agreement and if you want to call it a policy and kind of use that that term of course that's fine too I think if you can come away at the end of this with something that teachers can look at to know, you know, at our school we agree that effective teaching looks like this, includes these things, keep it simple and again for the learners this is what good learning looks like, this is what we want you to do guys and the teachers can use that and kind of use that to help them with their assessment as well. I think that you're going to have stronger outcomes for teaching and learning separately if you keep
0: that. Thank you and, and that brings us to the end of the, of the interview section Hannah and we've only scratched the surface of, of, of your book. So just before we move into the, the final three sections, the questions that I ask all the guests, could you share with the, the listeners where they could go and get your book? Because I highly encourage them to go and get it. Um, and also where they can engage with you and, and connect with you and, 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 and kind of share their, their, with their reading of your book.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, the book is available on Amazon. Um, it's a John publication as well so it's available via John Hatt website too um, so yeah the link is actually on my Twitter profile if you um, want to follow me on Twitter my handle is Beach Anna I don't know why it just happened to be that way I only joined Twitter a couple of years ago so has been quite new to it all um, but yeah I'm happy to connect on there and then throughout the book as well there are some resources that I put in and if you read the book and you think actually I want that resource I, I just you know drop me a message and I can email it over to you if that's helpful again all about saving you time all about reducing your workload so if you want something or if you want to chat about anything i'm happy to kind of have a chat with you
0: to, and get <laughs> that's brilliant and thank you for thank you for sharing that and and, and your offer to, to share with the, with the listeners and uh, i think that's a a, a great a great offer for, for everyone and, and helping everyone try and manage their workload better and, and, and save the time. So we're now then um, moving on to the final three Hannah and the questions I ask all our guests. and the first one there is what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career?
1: So I've kind of jotted down about five but I'm just going to stick with one because otherwise it's not fair is it? Um, funny. Okay so one that I think I'm going to go for is Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, Daniel Hanneman. Um, it is quite a heavy read, actually. Some of the content is quite long, um, But having said that, it totally changed my perspective on the way we think, and particularly how young people think, and this idea of kind of top-down thinking, so regulated thinking, bottom-up thinking, unregulated and how this impacts um, behaviour, and kind of buy into things and focus and it just it really spurred my thinking about learning and it opened my eyes up again to kind of separate teaching and learning to think actually what is learning and how do our brains kind of work so that's something i would um, recommend if you're
0: interested so thank you and since most of my guests can i hijack that question and give me about three or four do you want to share the titles just just the titles of the, the the other ones you jotted down
1: um focus by Daniel Goldman and um, Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed, and then obviously Daniel Willing.
0: Right. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. My second question, Johanna is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would it be?
1: Oh, so so many tips and things to kind of choose from, but I think overall, your time is precious. Um, you can't do everything in one given time, so just be kind to yourself. Doing a great job. Focus on one thing you want to work on. Dedicate a little bit of time to that. Help you feel confident and master that before you move on to the next thing. So just give yourself time and don't overload yourself.
0: Okay, thank you. And uh, the final question is one that really fascinates me and it is, what do you think most gets in the way of, of just great teaching in our classrooms?
1: I think um, worrying too much. And that's from top down to you know your, your classroom practice as well i think we, we all worry because there's so much to do we worry so much and that bogs our thinking so i think just streamline what it is you're thinking about and prioritize keep the goals clear um and if you can't achieve something like i said before for whatever reason come back to it another time so i think worrying too much gets in the way
0: it certainly, certainly does and that brings us to the to the end and then all that i've got left to say is to, to thank you very very much for your time this morning and your patience I haven't uh, we had to we, we had to start again um which was which was a bit a little, little bit embarrassing for me but thank you very much for your for your kindness and patience there so thank you i thank you thank you for listening to the becoming educated podcast until next time Teach with Joy.